darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. One John chapter one verses one to four. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Fantastic. Am I on? Not yet. There I am. There's my beautiful dulcet tones. So I'm like, wow, you really misread your own voice. That's okay, there's more of that coming. Friends, my name is Pastor Michael, and I have the deep honor and privilege of offering leadership to our family of churches. If this is your first time at a New Life Church, uh, then we have this family of churches, one at Coolangatta, where I was this morning, another at Rabina, and then one in Brisbane. And as Alex said, I prayerfully hope that there'll be more planted in Brisbane City. Amen? Amen. It's great to be in Brisbane today, if I can just say that. This is my third service preaching today. In my experience, the third service is always the best because it's the shortest. Who's excited for a short sermon? I was lying and now I know who you are. There you go. Uh, and it's just like, to be honest, there's just something beautiful about the, the ministry of New York Brisbane. As you're sitting here and we're praying, we're hearing sirens go through the streets and we're hearing the very visceral sounds of the city around us. And there's almost this kind of beautiful moment of, of a revolution happening right in the heart of Brisbane City as we declare the praises of God. And if you're here today and you're like, man, there's something different about these people. There's something different about what's going on here. And I can tell you exactly what it is. It's not just Alex's good looks or the fact that he calls his wife babe or the beautiful worship music, that was just such a weird moment on stage. You know, we could do that. Hey, babe. <laughs> or oh, my wife. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> but, but it's actually, it's not so much the people, but a person. And his name is Jesus. And today, just for the next couple of moments, I just get the opportunity to share with you about this guy named Jesus. And if you're here and you hear about Jesus every week and you're like, man, they always talk about Jesus, it's not because we run out of subject material. It's not because we don't know anything else to preach about, so we're just revisiting the same thing. It's because we believe that Jesus can't be spoken about enough. And I hope that today, whether you're new here or you're here for a while, that there might be something new as we step into a new series called 1 John. Now, when I was preparing this sermon, um, I think I was talking to Alex and you know, texting Aaron, and I'm like, man, let's sing this song. I'm so excited. And, and like, I thought that the text was really easy to preach. And then the further I got into it, the more panicked I became. And I'm like, oh, this, this scripture is actually not as easy as I thought it was. So I just say it to you today because I just need your prayer. Can you pray with me as we jump into today? Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you so much that we get to be in the heart of Brisbane City. That right now as we gather, we, we, we gather to be scattered tomorrow. But before we scatter, we, we wait and we rest. We long to hear your voice. As life bubbles around us, help us to be still. 
May distractions decrease and may your whisper increase, Holy Spirit. What we need is not me, not my voice. What we need, Holy Spirit, is you. I thank you for the promise that your word never returns void. So we pray, less of me, more of you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, friends, I want to start with a bit of a challenge. You have a phenomenal pastor here, and I'm so excited when Pastor Alex and Kath invite me to come preach, and I get to be with you for tonight. And the reason why I cheered about Grilled is I said to someone, I hope we're going to Grilled after the service. And they're like, we're going to Grilled. I'm like, nailed it. So good. I'm so excited about that. But I want to give you a challenge. You met a guy, if this is your first time, named Alex. He's the pastor here at New Life Brisbane. Good guy. Smart guy. Um, but I want to give you uh, an activity to begin. I want to see how would you describe Alex in two words? How would you describe Alex in two words? Now, some of you are like, I've never met him before. That's okay. You have about five minutes of material to work with, to go with. But if you were to say Alex is blank and blank, what would you say? If you could say Alex is blank and blank, what would be the two words that would summarize Alex when you met with your worker colleagues tomorrow, your friends, your family? How would you typify the gentleman with the husky beard that was just on platform before myself? Turn the person next to you and have a go. What, what are the two words you would use? Alrighty. Now, I don't usually do this, and it wouldn't work at Rabina necessarily because we're streaming online, and if you're listening to the podcast, you're like, no one's talking to me right now. What's going on? But for the sake of we're all in the room together, and it's thick and fast, I'm actually going to take some crowd participation. What are the two words that we're going to use to describe Alex today? I know a bunch of you, so I'll just call someone out if you haven't got one. Anna, what did you come up with? That's one word. Yeah, two words. Do you have a second word there? Wise and vocab. Wise and vocab. If you don't know what vocab means, it's because you haven't heard him preach. Come back next week and you will hear our dictionary of words. So I know you. Mr. Armstrong, do you have anything for me? Thoughtful and genuine. Wow, that's beautiful. I did this this morning with Scott and Kulingata, and his wife shouted out, Dad bod. What? So on that note, Kath, two words that you would use to describe. Um, kind? kind? Husband. Husband. Yeah, cool. A naming word. Kind boy. That works. It's difficult, right? It should be difficult. Because in this moment, well, what I've asked you to do is choose two words. Sorry, that's, I hope you guys are okay. What is more awkward for Scott and Georgie? Because the dad bod thing. There was this, there's this moment where like, I've asked you to summarize the entirety of what you know about Alex in two words. And there's this thing where you're like, I want to get it right. I don't want to get it wrong. And why is that the case? It's because you've had to choose two words. By choosing two words, you're excluding a whole bunch of other words in the English dictionary. Now, you're not saying these are the only two words that Alex should be known by, but in this moment, you're going, this is how I'd typify Alex. What I want you to do is email those two words to Alex this week, Alex Stark at church.nu. He'd find it really encouraging. What do I, why do I tell you this? Because I wonder, if I asked you, what two words would you use to describe God, what would you say? A more infinitely challenging task. 
If you had to use two words to describe the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the God who creates all things and from all things, the source of who, what would you say? What would you say? See, the, the apostle, or who we think was an apostle, John, the elder, the man who wrote the book in the Bible called 1 John, takes a stab at this. In fact, the whole part of 1 John, which he wrote in the New Testament, he actually summarizes in these two themes where he's like, if I could tell you about the God that I know, the God that I serve, and the God that I love, let me tell you two words that I would use. My God is light, and my God is love. In fact, if you go two slides forward, my man James, you'll see that these two words typify the whole experience of what he talks about. In 1 John 1 verse 5, he says this beautiful thing. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, this God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 4 verse 8, a verse you've probably heard. Maybe some of you have chosen to use in your explanation of who God is. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Light and love are the ways that 1 John chooses to typify, to describe the being, the creator of all things. Now when I say that, and maybe when you hear me say that, these words seem simple. They seem uncomplex. It seems a little bit nebulous. What does it mean for God to be light? And what does it mean for God to be love? It almost feels like we're at a Care Bear session at like a daycare. Being like, God's light. It's like, no, isn't that nice? But actually, as you're going to find out as we step into this series called Light and Love, is that these words are only airy to us because of our current culture and vernacular have been robbed of their weight. But for God to be light, not like light, for God to be light, for God to be love, it actually disqualifies a whole bunch of other things. For God is light, so therefore there's a declaration that in him there is no darkness. For God is love, so in him there is no hate. And the book of 1 John has a stark challenge and reality that calls out to all those who call themselves followers of Jesus. And it says this, are you a people known for light? And are you a people known for love? Maybe it's your first time in church today and you're a bit weirded out by how this whole thing works. You didn't know crowd participation was a thing. We just did karaoke for a whole five minutes at the start there and you're wondering what's happening next. In this moment, what, it was great karaoke, Aaron. I thought it was beautiful. <laughs> what we're about to do is we're about to sit in what we call the Bible and the Bible's not a book. It's a collection of books. It's, it's a collection of what I would call historical documents, writings, poems, narratives, laws, uh, there, there, there's, there's literature of wisdom in this book. There's testimonies and eyewitness accounts. When we open the Bible, we're not opening a book that you would read, like you would read Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, or if you weren't allowed to read Harry Potter growing up in the church, like you know, whatever that was for you. And, 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 and if you attack an approach, which there's no shame about that at all. I wasn't allowed to either. When, 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 there's, when there's this approach to that, that we read this like we'd read a good novel, like John Grisham novel, then we actually, it's nothing better than something to put us to sleep at night. But what we're about to do is read a text that was written to a people and that was not us, in a time that was not ours. This Bible is a collection of books written to someone that was not us, to a people not us, but it was written for us. And tonight, we believe that God wants to speak to us through it. And in the New Testament, in the book of 1 John, we read the inspired word of God as John starts to unpack. But the real thing that John tries to focus on is this, is that when you encounter a God who is light and a God who is love, it transforms three main relationships in your world. It transforms your relationship with God when you know who he is. It transforms your relationship with sin. And it transforms your relationship with others. And over the next five weeks, we're going to just explore the book of 1 John. 
And I'm only preaching this week. So if you hated today, don't judge our, our church just on today. Come back next week and Alex will preach far better than I do. But there's this sense where actually what we're going to do is step in and ask God, how are you calling us to transform all of our relational spheres in our lives in light of who you are and who we're called to be? Because the key thing that John tries to deal with in his text is this. He's actually asking a question. How do you know someone is actually a Christian? See, our world is filled with counterfeits, isn't it? There's this place in the Gold Coast called Corara Markets. I'm not, I'm not actually quite you know, over where that kind of place is in Brisbane, where you go and like, things are cheap and there's knockoffs around. Is there a place like that in Brisbane? South Bank? I don't know. People are like, no, South Bank, that's a completely different thing. Like, I used to live in Brisbane, but, but there's this sense where you go to Carrara Markets, or maybe you've been to Asia and gone to one of those street markets there, and you walk into a shop and they're selling Nike Air Maxes or like Louis Vuitton bags or Rolexes for $5. There's a question in your mind where you're not actually thinking this is a real Rolex, right? You know that if you pick up a $5 Air Nike Air Max, there's going to be something off about it. It's material, it's logo, it's stitching. It might look like a pair of Nikes, but you know deep down inside it's not a pair of Nikes. And the question is, just like how do you know what you're paying for when you go to one of these markets, the question that John wants to ask is, how do you know if a Christian is counterfeit or real? Because I think in our post-Christian world today, in our post-modern society, there's a lot of people who know how to walk the walk and talk the talk, who know how to look like they're following Jesus. They come to church, they go to small group, they know how to say things that are au fait in the Christian world. But there is a sense where John pushes on that and he says, no, 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 I want to go deep and I want to be clear about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so if you are someone here in this church today who you're sitting here going, I don't know if I am, I'm still exploring faith. Can I say you're so welcome here? And that there's kind of like exposure that we're going to have with you over the next couple of weeks saying, if you want to know if we're legit, if you want to know if we actually hold up to what Jesus called us to be, we're going to tell you what that standard is and you can work it out if it's us or not. And then there are those of you who are followers of Christ and I'd say that it's actually a moment for us to dig into the depths of our heart and go, are we real? Are we real? Are we actually following Jesus or are we just hoping we look like we are? And John challenges and says, there's a way of life on offer for us. It's far better than living a counterfeit lifestyle. It's the real thing. And in the start of the book, in the start of 1 John, this writer, the guy with John, they think he also wrote the gospel of John as well. He opens up by not so much going to God is light and God is love. He opens up the book of 1 John by offering two challenges of the markers of someone that is a Christian. And the first challenge is this, it'll be on the next slide, is that you, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who declares that you trust the person of Jesus Christ, his existence, his reality, his rule, and his reign. And secondly, if you have fellowship with God and with others. And you're like, oh, that's pretty easy. But what does he mean by this? Well, to do that, let's, let's jump into 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. If you've got a Bible, you can jump along with me so you know that I'm not reading out of something that's not biblical, but it's actually in the text, which is always something safe to do when someone's preaching. And we read this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. He opens up his story. Now, most people in the New Testament, we think they wrote letters or what's called epistles. Because when they're writing these things, they kind of say, dear Gaius, or you know, dear this person from Luke, or from Paul, or from John. And we're like, oh, we know this is a letter. But 1 John is the first of three installments from John. 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. 2 John and 3 John were clearly letters, because he says, dear someone, or dear church. But here in the book of 1 John, we, we have this piece of writing that kind of has a cold opening. 
It's like, you know, an Office episode or something like that. It just kind of launches you right into the middle of the action. Shout out to the Office fans out there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Others, you should go watch this on Netflix. There's this thing with one John where he opens up right in the middle of the action. He doesn't give you any introduction. But this, we believe, is actually a sermon. This is John's prologue into the main body of the text. And what does he write? He gets really confusing straight away. That which was from the beginning, writes John, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, when I read that, if you I reached the end of that and you thought to yourself, this makes perfect sense to me and I understand everything he is saying. You are in an elite level of intelligence that I do not even understand and nor do I relate to. Because when I first read this, I'm like, God, what is he even trying to communicate here in this moment? If you're confused or you're a bit wondering, oh, this, this doesn't need to jump out of text. If you know about John's writing from the Gospel of John, he starts the Gospel of John similarly. It's, it's not clear. He's poetic. It's complex. And so I want to for a moment just break it down. Because what John is saying here is he begins by saying, I have seen something. I have touched something. I have witnessed something, and it's amazing. Have you ever witnessed something that no one else believes? Have you been a part of something where you're like, oh, was there anyone else watching? And, and like, I don't know, like you spun a bottle over on its head and it landed the way it should. You're like, that's the best. And in that moment, no one else was there. And when they didn't believe you, you turned around. You're like, I was there. I saw it. I had one of those moments. I have a story, which I'm not going to go too much into today because it takes a long time, where I was caught on um, Mount Fuji in the middle of Japan. Some of you know this story. I've said it before, but a lot of you have never had the pleasure of sitting under this boring story. So welcome to the club. Thanks, Adrian. Adrian's like, the amount of times I've heard this. And I was on Mount Fuji, and what happened was, in the middle of Mount Fuji, I got caught in a hurricane. And in the middle of this hurricane, it was about 10.30, 11 p.m. at night, and our lives were threatened. We got threatened that we were going to get washed off the mountain by the winds and the rain. We had to scale down off the mountain. We ended up meeting these people who claimed to be vampires from Transylvania in the middle of this mountain village. It was bizarre. It was weird. And as I tell you this story, I can see some of your faces. You're like, you liar. This didn't happen. And what I'd say to you, number one, is I have photos. Number two, there's a longer story to it. And number two, three, you weren't there. I was. I saw it. I touched it. I was in the middle of the hurricane. And I've got a picture like this with my dad and sister behind us looking like we're near death on the side of Mount Fuji that I'm willing to show you later if you're really that interested. Why do I say this? Because I'm, whenever I tell this story, people look at me with disbelief. But I turn around to them and I say, no, no, no. Something happened and it changed me. I will never go back to that damn mountain ever again. <laughs> this is what this is what John is saying. At the very beginning of his letter, he says something has happened in the beginning. In the beginning of this whole story, something happened and I saw it. I touched it. I heard it. What was that thing? What was that thing? Well, he describes it for us. What is it? The word of life. Now you're like, what? That would be a fair response. What is the word of life? Well, when you think about the word of life, when, well, what John's talking about here, what has he touched? What has he seen? What has he heard? The word of life, it sounds like a message, doesn't it? It sounds like someone has given him a message or maybe a messenger has come to him. 
And what, what we'd ask is, has God sent John a message and he's seen it and wants to tell everyone about it? Or has God sent John a messenger and he's seen and heard and, and touched this person and, and he wants to tell people about the messenger? And the answer to the question, when the Bible talks about the word of life, it's not just a message and it's not just a messenger. We actually believe that it was both wrapped up in the one person. That what John is talking about here is not just words on a page, it's actually a person named Jesus. And to explain why this is important, let me ask you a question. If you were to tell someone you, were, you love them, how would you do that? If you wanted to communicate an important message to someone you cared about, how would you do that? Back in my day, which sounds weird, I'm only 33, but let's go there. Back in my day, when I was in school, we used to write letters. This was before Snapchat or Instagram or DMs were a thing. And I would write a letter to someone and say, you know, I really like you, I really care about you, and you would send it to them. Now, if I wanted to show someone I love them, I wouldn't just write it, I might buy them a gift. So I might send them a letter and a gift. I'd send them something which communicates my message and shows my message. But if I really wanted to explain to someone the heart of how I felt, of who I was, I would rock up in person. And so when I Walked up in person with a gift, with it, with a letter and with a ring, and I saw my wife on the day I proposed to her, and I said, "I love you. Will you marry me?" I didn't want to do it by proxy. I wanted her to see my eyes. And the reason why I say this is because what John is talking about is not a message or a messenger, but God wanted to communicate something to the world. And so he sent the word of life, which was a message and a messenger, all rolled up into one thing. And that one thing was not a, just a human, but it was God Himself made flesh. What John is witnessing to is he's saying, friends, in the beginning, I was there. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. Trust me, he wasn't just a good guy. This was the word of life. His name was Jesus. And he points to his divinity because he goes on and he says, we proclaim to eternal life that that which was with the Father and now has appeared to us. What John is saying here is this. In answer to the question, can you know God? John says, yes. I have seen him, I have touched him, and I've heard him. And you can too. Friends, how do you know God? How do you know who Jesus is? It's an important question that John starts off that's actually a marker of every Christian. Every person who's a real follower of Jesus has chosen to place their trust, not in an idea, not in a fictional narrative, but in a person, in an actual being. And how do we know that being existed? Well, friends, there's two ways. There's two real ways that we know Jesus was who, who the Bible claims he was. The first one is his historical and scriptural accounts. And the second is personal encounter. So let me start with historical and scriptural accounts. Maybe you're here today and you're not yet a Christian or you are a Christian, but you're sitting and going, I don't actually know if you can trust the Bible. Like, how do you know that the Bible is true and that Jesus actually existed? Like, it's a nice idea, but really, was he real? And I, I'm going to move through this fast because Alex spent some time on this last December. You can go and look it up in our Come Let Us Adore Him series about the historicity of Christ. But ultimately, there is no serious non-Christian nor Christian historian that would agree that Jesus didn't exist. All serious historians, both non-Christian and Christian, would agree that there is a person in history that actually existed. Why? Because it's not just Christian literature and historical accounts that point to his existence. We have the works of Pliny. We have the works of Tacitus and Josephus, these ancient Greek, Roman, and Jewish writers who had no interest in the Christian faith, who talk about a man named Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Christ that people worshipped and followed. To not believe that Jesus was a historical figure is to actually turn a blind eye to historical fact that is agreed upon by people far smarter than you and I. 
And I don't say that as a matter of offense. I say it as almost a way, let's just remove an obstacle out of the way. That actually there's, there's, there's no longer a question by people who take science and history seriously that Jesus didn't exist. The question is not, did he exist? The question is, who was this man that existed? And so how do we find that? Well, actually, we have these accounts. And like I said, the Bible is filled with historical testimony and eyewitness fact. You might be like, well, it's a bit of a biased text. And most historians would say every text is a little bit biased. There's no such thing as an unbiased historical text. So when you come to the historical accounts in the books and in the Gospels, what you're reading is eyewitness and documented accounts of the life and witness of Jesus Christ. And I'm just saying this to you today to actually move obstacles out of the way, not because this is where I want to drill down. But a historian and theologian named John Dixon says it like this. He goes on and he says, It is true that historians take the Christian agenda into account when they analyze the New Testament writings, just as they do the biases in Tacitus and Josephus, you know, ancient guys I mentioned before. But it is not the case that historians place Christian writings in a special category called religion. After centuries of scrutiny, serious historians have been able to, unable to raise evidential proof that the Gospels don't provide historical proof of Christ. Historians do see the Gospels as valuable historical texts. A guy, another historian and theologian, F.F. Bruce, goes on to say this. He says, The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one's dreams of questionings. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. I say this, friends, because we can go deeper into history. I'm a student of history, and those of you who have heard me preach before know I love that stuff, but I'm seeing some of you start to fall asleep, so we're going to keep on moving straight through that. But I'm saying the reason why you don't know if God is real is because you can't believe in his historical fact, friends. It's not because it's not there. It's just because we haven't looked. God, Jesus was a person who existed in history, so we have to then ask the question, was he said, was he who he claimed to be? And this is what happens. We come to a man named John. And he's writing to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus. And he's saying, this man named Jesus is who he said he was. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. Why is he so adamant to start a book like this? It's because there's a problem in the city of Ephesus. There's a group of Christians that have risen up and they've decided that they don't want to believe in the historical facts of Jesus Christ anymore. And these groups of Christians who we believe actually followed a way called Gnosticism actually began to say, well, you know what? I, I don't know if I believe all the testimonies of other people. I'm not sure Jesus was divine. I think he was just a human like me. And in fact, maybe if I look into myself, I can be just as divine as Jesus was. And these groups of Christians start to rise up and they don't just leave the church. They start to preach to the church and saying, this Jesus you're following, he's not, he's not really everything they tell you he is. Actually, you should come hang out with us. See, Gnosticism, we might think, oh, it sounds like an ancient word, but it's actually a modern problem. Gnosticism basically just means secret knowledge. And, and, and Alex is going to be able to explain this much better than I can, so talk to him after this. But I'll, I'll give you my layman's understanding. Gnosticism is, is basically a group of theological thought where people believe that, that knowledge or spiritual wisdom is something you don't find out there, but you actually withdraw into yourself and you find in here. It's an individual experience and discovery of truth. And the reason why that's dangerous, not only back in that day, but in this day, is it actually gives, gives way and rise to the individualistic culture, not only of the ancient world, but also of our postmodern era. Is what Gnosticism starts to say is what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is what's true for me. Let's not offend each other. And that's actually just not how truth works. I'm not saying anyone has a monopoly on truth other than Christ, but I am saying this truth by its very definition is absolute. 
If I walked you outside today and said that it's been clear all day and there's not been a skerrick of rain, it's been boiling hot and what a beautiful summer's day it was, and you turned around to me and said you're wrong, there's actually empirical evidence for which one of us is right and which one of us is wrong. I can't go, well, your truth is true for you and my truth is true for me, so why don't we just... No, someone would go, no, 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 there is something that's true. Now, it gets a lot harder when we step into the person of Jesus, but that's why we actually have to ask the question, how do you know who Jesus is? And Jesus isn't a making up of our own personal decisions of a Christ that we've constructed that we're comfortable with. Because if Jesus was a historical figure, which is why we're I started, we don't get the choice to decide who he is. We have to discover who he is. This is like if I came to you today and said, man, I love Pastor Alex. He's a legend, hey? I love his hip-hop dancing. Who loves Alex's hip-hop dancing? It's phenomenal. He crumps with the best of them. He breaks it down, man. I love it. And then he does this weird thing. He spins on his head. Who wants to see Alex's hip-hop dancing right now, right? Fantastic. Right? And there's this moment where Alex would be like, I, I don't, I don't hip-hop dance. And I'm like, no, yes, you do. I've decided you do. So you do. So I'd love to see. Let's go. That's how stupid it is for us to come to Christ and say, no, I've decided who you are. He's not this person we put our hopes and fears on and say, well, you better be something that pleases me. He is an actual historical figure, not just a historical fact, but an eternal reality to be discovered. And I say this, friends, because too many of us have made buddy Jesuses that we've built up to make us comfortable with the idea of who we're following. It's like Talladega Nights, possibly Will Farrell's worst movie of all time, where Ricky Bobby, you know that movie where he's, <clears throat> if you don't, don't go watch it, but he's praying, and there's that moment where he's praying, and he says, you know, dear little baby infant Jesus, and someone's like, you can't pray to baby infant Jesus. He's like, I can pray to whichever Jesus I want. He's my Jesus. And that, that statement alone is symptomatic of how we view God. My God would never. My God doesn't. God is not a personal belonging that we shape and mold to base our, comfortability, our comfortable nature around. He is someone to be discovered and he wants you to discover him as a fact, not an idea. And the reason why I say this is, friends, is that there is a God who exists and there is a savior named Jesus who is the word of life, who came, who reigned, and is now ruling on the right hand of the throne of the Father. And he is someone to be encountered. And what John is inviting us into here, he says, I have seen. I have heard, I have touched. But there's an invitation in the Christian faith that Jesus was not just something that we could see, hear, and touch in historical times, but by the power of his Holy Spirit, we can encounter him today. See, what John is giving the city of Ephesus is his testimony. Say, so you might not believe in Jesus. Let me tell you why I believe in Jesus. Because I was there. I've encountered something. And I don't care what you say. You can't tell me it wasn't real because I was there. And I say this to you just for a moment to those of you who are Christians. Because there are too many of us that have forgotten our testimony. We've forgotten our encounter with Christ. We have allowed foreign teachings and bad YouTube sermons and you know, different ideas swirling around our postmodern society to begin to rob us from what we've seen, what we've known, and what we've touched. And some of us have actually allowed that to rob the joy of our salvation as we've forgotten that we encountered a living Christ. And this is powerful. Because if you said to me, Jesus is not real, I would say to you, then explain to me, 21-year-old Michael, who did dark things the night before and found himself at the back of New Life Rabina Church many years ago, broken and hurting, 
feeling alone and lost. And in the moment of, of the faithful preaching of the word, I broke down in tears as I encountered the presence. I taste, I touched, I saw, I heard that God was real and Jesus was calling my name. Now, when Dorothy Matheson, many of you have heard me tell this story, came and clutched my hands, this old lady, and said, Dearie, do you know God loves you because he sees you as lovable, not because he has to? And it just shattered me. And in a moment, I can't tell you anything other than that. I can't show you scientific proof other than my life was changed. And I hold on to that testimony. Why? Because the book of Revelation says that there is power in the blood of the Lamb and in the power of the testimony of the saints. Why is that? Why is there power in people declaring the testimony of what they've experienced? Because that's how we judge all things. That's why you go on to Google review before you go to a coffee shop. Why? Because you want someone else's testimony. When I was young and, and I saw a roller coaster, which I'm deadly afraid of, I did not believe anybody about that roller coaster that had not been on it before. It's going to be safe. You've been on it? Do you know? No, you haven't. Shut up, mum. I'm going to go find someone that's been on it. I never said shut up, mum. <laughs> right? But I'd find someone that's been on it and be like, tell me everything that happens. Is it scary? Did you fall out? Did you die? Will I be okay? Right? And they're like, hey, listen, it's a little scary. This is what you're going to feel when you go up. Then there's this loopy thing. I'm like, cool, loopy thing. And I'm listening to their testimony. It's preparing me. And I go, okay, I can trust because you're not, I've not just read the facts. I've heard your experience. And the reason why I say this is there are Christians here in this room today who you've forgotten your story. And what people in your world need is not the 50 facts about why Jesus is historically real. That's why I just wanted to get rid of that. They want to know why he's real to you, how you've experienced it, what you've seen, what you've touched, what you've heard. It's the most power that we have when we step into someone's world. Why? Because they might not know how to trust God yet, but they do know if they want to trust you or not. Do you know your testimony? And those of you here today who aren't Christians, what I'd say to you is that I believe that God wants you to encounter him, not tomorrow, today. He wants, he is here, he is present right now, and he's whispering your name, and he's calling you. And just as John would say to you, I've tasted, I've touched, I've seen. he didn't say taste. He said, I've touched, I've heard, I've seen. It's an offer that the divine was the word made life. Now, just because a group of Christians got up and they chose to become non-Christians anymore because what they changed about Jesus, hey, don't let it change the power of your testimony. Because, friends, there are many things in the Christian faith that we debate. Worship styles, when we should meet, you know, ways we do baptism, what communion is, how we read the Word of God, you know, how did God create the world. We, we kind of discuss these things, but there are some things that are not up for debate. There are things that are up for discussion and questioning. But if someone is to change the identity and character and nature of who Jesus Christ is, that he was the son of God, both fully God and fully man, and that he died and was physically and bodily resurrected again to now sit at the right hand of the throne of God. If someone doesn't believe in that, then they have chosen to step away from the Christian faith. And I say that because sometimes we can be led astray by people who are like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's not that important to believe that stuff. Yes, it is. Why? Because what John is talking about here is the incarnation that God had to be fully man and fully God to save you. Because if he was not fully God, he could not save you. And if he was not fully man, you couldn't trust he understood you. And it's in this moment that John offers us, have you placed your trust not in an idea or a song or someone else's God, but in a living and breathing King of kings and Lord of lords, not just a historical fact, but an eternal reality. And John says, because when you do, here's what happens. Here's what happens you get welcomed into a fellowship of difference. 
In 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, he goes on and he says this. And some of you are like, wow, we're only halfway through. No, we're landing the plane now, friends. And you're like, I've heard you say it before. I'm saying it again. We proclaim to you, he says, what we have seen and heard. Why does John so adamant that people need to believe this? Why is he like, man, I want you to get this. So that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The reason why John so adamantly wants to do this is because he doesn't want people to have community. He wants people to have fellowship, something deeper than community. Now, if you're here today, you don't believe in Jesus. Can I just say, you, you have community with us. You belong here. We want to be friends with you. We want to go out to grill with you tonight. You don't have to believe to belong here at New Life Brisbane. But when someone does step into believing and placing their trust in Jesus, they enter into a new relationship with the brothers and sisters of the faith. And it's a relationship that the Bible calls, the Greek word is actually koinonia. It's translated to fellowship. And koinonia means, means divine participation. It means shared commonality. It's this kind of understanding that, that when you place your trust in Jesus, you get welted into a you know, universal family of brothers and sisters where you hold everything in common because you have one thing in common. It's actually a moment where we get to reflect the scandal of God's grace in how we relate to one another. And John's saying, hey, when you place your trust in Jesus, remember you live out the story of grace by your koinonia, by your fellowship with each other. And I wanna fight to protect that because when you stop believing in who Jesus is, you actually take a step back from the fellowship with your brothers and sisters. And I don't want you to step out of that. That's important. Why? Because it's our fellowship, our koinonia that should actually confuse the world. Do you know how many people go to this church or go to a church that probably we would not be friends if we were not Christians? I meet some really cool people at New Life Brisbane. Like there's graphic designers, there's engineers, there's architects, and I'm chatting to them and I'm like, man, I have no idea if we would be friends if we weren't Christians. Like you are really cool. Has anyone else ever thought that? I met New Life Cool and Gatter this morning. I'm hanging out with Scott. I can't use Alex as this example because I feel like we're pretty much brothers and I love you a lot. But Scott and I, which who I also love, kind of cool and gather. <laughs> Scott's like this, Scott's, you know, he's preached here a couple of times. Scott's got like this well-manicured beard. He's a surfer, like he's a handyman. Like if we want anything done around our house, I'm like, hey, sweetheart, I could do that. She's like, maybe you should call Scott. Like that'd be a good idea. Like I said to Scott this morning, if we were in school together, you probably would have beat me up. He's like, probably I would have. Like, you know, it's, it's just, that's who we were. But now when Scott and I get together, we don't talk about the things we have in, have in common other than one thing. Because I don't surf, I don't mountain bike, I don't do any of those things. But when we get together, man, we have a deep bond and a deep friendship. Why? Because we share a common savior. So we cry together, we pray together, and we should confuse the world why this beautiful, good-looking, sexy, attractive, bearded man named Scott hangs out with me, right? Like, it just doesn't make, I shouldn't have said sexy in a sermon. <laughs> Some of you are like, hmm. And the truth is, is that it should confuse people. New Life Brisbane should be a place where the Quinonia experienced here is confusing. Where drug addicts can walk in off the streets into a church where police officers are worshiping and they find commonality in the Savior called Jesus Christ. Where people who during the week are making shady deals come to find repentance in the church of Jesus Christ. And the very people who, who were affected by those shady deals are in the same church offering grace and forgiveness and love. That people who have interests in this, liberal voters, labor voters, green voters, Palmer United voters, right? Like wherever you're at in that spectrum that they can actually find commonality. Vaccinated and vaccinated, unvaccinated can actually find commonality in the fact that we have something greater that unifies us than disunifies us. And it should actually confuse the world. Why? Because we have experienced a fellowship that should confuse us. 
You don't just have fellowship with each other, you have fellowship with Father and the Son. That koinonia, that divine participation, that common, that shared commonality that, 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 that John talks about, what does he say you actually get it with? You get it with God. You. You know, I mean, I can understand that. Like, look at me. Like, who, who doesn't want to hang out with me? No, but some of you here today know exactly what I mean. Because you know what you did this week. You know who you really are. And God says, I, I want you to come have a seat at my table. And we go, hang on, no, God, like, do you know what I thought about? Oh, yeah. But I didn't just come to point out your sin. I came to wipe it away because your sin wasn't my main point, reunifying you into the family of God. I want you at my table. And we remember that God wants fellowship with me, with you, right now. Not when you get it together, right now. Here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. What happens in that moment is that we live out of fellowship with each other that is beautiful. So friends, here's the question I have today. Do you trust in Jesus? And do you have fellowship with each other and God? Because if not, there's an invitation. There's an invitation not to try, but to encounter, to come and know, to come and see, to come and hear. John finishes this letter and says, why are these things important? So that our joy may be full, he writes. Pastor Alex is going to get to preach the sermon next week and in the following weeks, other people. And, and, and this series is going to be a series of joy for us because as pastors, well, our main chief joy will be this, for people to discover Jesus and be loved by Him and love those who love Him. That will make our joy full because that's why we do what we do. So friends, I finish with this humble plea. Do you know Jesus today? Do you know fellowship, not community? Do you belong with one another? I wonder just in this moment before we worship, just bow your heads and close your eyes. In a moment, we're going to share communion together. But before we do, I just want to make an offer. Are you here today and you need to encounter the living incarnate Jesus Christ? You've tried to decide who he is, but he's saying, come discover who I am. I'm the rock that you build yourself upon, not the clay you form. I formed you. Come know me. Come walk with me. Hear my voice. If you're here today and you're like, I want to know the word of life, then what he has on offer for you is this. He wants to forgive you, not just of your sins, but of any waywardness in your heart and offer you a second chance and a way back into the kingdom of God. He's opened up a seat at his table and he wants to carry you to sit at a place you don't belong except for the fact that he paid the price to make the way. If you're here today and you want to encounter the living and resurrected Jesus Christ, I just wonder, would you open up your hands in front of you right now? Lord God, I pray for all those whose hands are just open. God, I, I can't do anything here. 
This is on you. So in Jesus' name, I pray. Right now, tonight, breathe afresh. Call the name. others of you here who I just feel you've forgotten the joy of your salvation and the testimony that you have in Christ. I wonder if you would join us and just open up your hands in front of you. Lord Jesus, before we remember communion, may we remember what you've done. It's time. Father, may we not be afraid to be a people of conviction in a world of confusion. Lead us, guide us, strengthen the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name. Just friends, in this moment of prayer, when you're ready, if you want to just stand to your feet, that would be great. And just remain in an attitude of prayer. We're going to sing a song just as, as we respond. And in this moment of your children and kids' life, we'd love you to go grab them so we can share communion as a family. We're going to sing a song called No Other Name. It's like 50 years old. Those people who laugh know it's like eight years old. But it's a song that just says this. There is a name that can be trusted. It's a name under which we can find salvation. There is a name by which we can be saved. It's the name is Jesus. And friends, I need to tell you this. Jesus is not an idea to be agreed with. He's a person to know. I'll just be real with you. There are some times Jesus feels far from me. I hope that's okay to say. But I don't feel like God is right next to me. I feel like he's distant. But I return to my testimony. And I hold on to God who's holding on to me. Because I know there is no other name by which man can be saved than Jesus Christ. I've tested it. I've heard it. I've seen it. And I know it. And it's our truth today. Let's declare it and worship God together.